0: Hello, and welcome to the King's Fund podcast, where we talk about the big issues and ideas in health and care. I'm Helen McKenna. I'm a senior fellow here at the King's Fund. In this episode, we're exploring the different ways in which the police interact with people with mental health conditions, and in particular, their role in responding to people in crisis. Now, we're very lucky to welcome fantastic guests onto the podcast, but once in a while, we can't get everyone in the same place at the same time. So this episode is brought to you in two parts. To start we're going to speak to Chief Constable Mark Collins, the National Police Chiefs Council Lead for Mental Health and Policing, and then the second part we welcome two guests who help us explain the health policy context, as well as exploring this topic from the perspective of someone who is an expert by experience, but more on that later in the episode. First, let's hear more about the role of the police in relation to mental health from Mark Collins. Mark, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. So it'd be really helpful if you could start by telling us a bit about your role as the lead for mental health and what this involves.
1: So as you said, uh, I'm the National Police Chiefs Council lead for mental health in policing, which basically means I represent all of the chief constables and their police forces in discussions and debate about the police's response to dealing with people with mental health crises. I'm also the chief constable of David Powys Police, which is one of the Welsh police forces.
0: Fantastic. So let's start with a bit of an overview of the role of police in this area. Can you tell us a bit about the legal duties and responsibilities that the police have in relation to mental health?
1: Yes, well, we probably use two main powers that that are given to us. One is uh, what's called Section 136 of the Mental Health Act, which is basically a police officer can detain a person that we believe is going to harm themselves or another person, we can detain those people for a mental health assessment, which means taking them to an approved suite where they're seen by a a psychiatrist and uh, given a full mental health assessment. The other power that we've got that we most frequently use is probably Section 135 of the Mental Health Act, which is a warrant of entry, uh, which allows us to gain entry into a private premises with an approved social worker and a doctor to carry out an assessment there. And when you're talking about a suite, is that... place of safety it would be in my opinion a health-based place of safety accident emergency units uh, would be deemed places of safety Uh, We have pushed very hard to reduce the number of times that we take people to police cells as a place of safety. We don't think that's proper and correct. But of course, there are occasions where somebody is so violent that they need to be detained in a place where they can be monitored and a a police station and a cell has been deemed the only place suitable, especially if there's not a health-based place of safety available. I'm pleased to say that we've reduced our numbers significantly. Most police forces are down to single figures now where they take someone into a police cell as a place of safety. And in fact, you may be aware that Sir Simon Wesley has recently done a review of the Mental Health Act and one of the recommendations that comes from that review is a complete ban of the use of police cells going forward as a place of safety. I've pushed very strongly and very hard for that to happen.
0: And tell us a bit more about that. Are you saying that really in no case is it appropriate for somebody in crisis to be...
1: Well, I think I think there are occasions where people need to be de- detained, yeah. be detained for quite um, considerable periods of time until they calm down. You know, we we use handcuffs and we've seen leg restraints being used and spit guards and things like that. Um, but actually, you can have that same uh, facility in a health-based place that's safe. You can have a padded room. You can have um, all the facilities there. And actually, what you've got there are doctors and nurses and, and medical staff, clinicians that are able to deal with people. And unfortunately, on occasions, we've we've seen... Deaths in police custody, yeah. where people have become so ill, we've not got crash teams available, uh, you know, in in police stations. We've not got the appropriate levels of support there. Yeah. So the health setting is much better.
0: And I was reading a report put out by Her Majesty's Inspectorate of Constabulary. I, I imagine you were probably involved in in developing we, that report. We were, report. and I yes. was indeed, yes. Yeah, and I saw that the report suggested that police resources are being diverted from dealing with crime because police are having to deal with calls relating to mental health. Can you talk us through what's going on there? Is there a rise in this type of activity?
1: Well, I think nationally, over two to three years, we've seen a 30 to 40% increase in calls for mental health support. Let me be very clear. I've always said the police police have a role in supporting people in the community with mental ill health. Every police force in the country will have a priority around supporting vulnerable people in their communities, and it's right and proper that we do that. I do think there's a level of where that support is. So we should be responding to uh, emergency uh, mental health calls. Those people that, as the Act says, are threatening to harm themselves or other people. Of course we have a role to play and of course we are the right and proper people to attend in those emergency situations. I think there are some issues in terms of where we are actually interacting in crisis care and community care because the facility and the capacity is just not there in, in health boards and trust to support their patients. And time and time again, we see ourselves being more involved in doing routine calls, welfare check calls, and really that's not the role of the police. And I have to say, I I think when we do go to some of these calls, we've had some very, very positive feedback. We are the 24-7 default service, uh, so we're always available. But actually, you have to put yourself in the position of someone in a mental health crisis and seeing a police car turning up and seeing police officers in uniform getting out that car to come and speak with you and support you. Are we the right and proper people to do that? On occasions, yes, but on occasions and more often not
0: Yeah. And you say your data suggesting there's been a 30 to 40% increase nationally in that. And obviously that's going to have, you know, that has a massive impact on your work. You also say police do have a role in this space. You suggested there that the capacity in other services is not currently present, which you see as being one of the reasons why police are having to step into this space. Are there other reasons around why you think police are having to pick up the pieces? Is there something around funding, for example? Well,
1: I think um, if we go back to where we've been in the last sort of ten years in, in terms of austerity, mm. I think all the services have struggled, uh, and and you know the police. I talk about the police there, you know, uh, health boards, uh, local authorities have all had had, had budgets cut. Yeah. I think I have a very good working relationship with our colleagues in NHS England and NHS Wales. And I think if they were sat around the table here now, they would agree that some of that demand on the police service is not right and does need to shift back yeah. their organisations. Yeah. However, they can only do what they can do with the, with the money that they've got, facilities that they've got and the capacity that they've got. And we, we recognise this. So I think the the opportunity to um, maximise the use of the £2.3 billion worth of funding that has been made available to NHS England, mm. um, you know, in really looking at the demand on the police service uh, and other agencies as well, and shifting that demand back is, is really welcomed. And I know, speaking to my colleagues in NHS England, there is an opportunity for police forces to get round the table and have discussions about their specific demand and, and actually to make sure that money goes into our areas. Yeah. So I think we have been picking up some of the pieces. Um, it's a capacity issue, it's a funding issue, and we welcome the the long-term NHS mental health improvement plan that we're seeing.
0: And I'm really interested in you, you talk about, you know, the the police are the kind of 24-7 default service. Um, and I just wonder about, because obviously uh, within the the emergency services, there's also the ambulance service and A&E is open 24-7. So I guess from your perspective, what's going on that it's landing on, on police and it's
1: not being picked up? Well, I think, I think again, it goes back to, the provision you've got in each of the health board areas for crisis care and community mm. care. So very often someone in crisis will call their crisis care team or community care team and be told we've not got the you know the, the numbers, yeah. people to come and see you call the police. So yeah. that happens. The other thing of course is in relation to ambulances, we know the ambulance service has been stretched as yeah. well in terms of, of its uh, targets and its yeah. figures. So very often at any given time every police force in this country will be involved in taking people with mental health problems to uh, places of safety for an assessment. Very often, certainly in my own force area, that can be a 120-mile round trip, and right. it can mean my office is sat with with um, patients for sometimes 10, 12 hours waiting for an assessment to take place. Now, that takes officers from the front line dealing with crime investigations, crime prevention, yeah. and being visible in our communities, which is what the public wants. Yeah. Uh, but one of the other big issues that we find ourselves... Um, contending with, is people coming into police custody for minor offences, criminal assault, um, criminal damage, public order offences, things like that. And once they're in custody, they're then deemed to be unwell. Mm -hmm. So we finish with the criminal aspect. Um, They're either released on bail or they're charged with an offence or cautioned. And then what happens is we we have them assessed and we fail to remove them out of police custody Mm. into a health-based place of safety and into a bed. And that, that causes us some huge problems. Across the UK about four and a half thousand times a year. And the huge problems being the the kind of experience and outcomes for those people. Well, the experience is that they are kept in a police cell until a bed is made available for them or found to be available for them. So at a a certain point in time, uh, we are, as as a police service, keeping them unlawfully in custody whilst we're waiting for a bed. My officers uh, and medical staff contained within custody units will monitor and support that individual waiting for that bed to be made available. But on some occasions, that can be five, six days. And whilst we welcome the NHS long-term plan to you know, change mental health provision, uh, inpatient beds is something that probably won't be where it needs to be until about 2023, Mm. 2024. So that is a huge issue for us.
0: Yeah, there's a question about what gets done in the introvert. Yeah, indeed. Just thinking about the impact of, of this work on individual officers, how well equipped are they to deal with, for example, working with people in crisis, but also managing people when they have been assessed as unwell after they've been arrested?
1: So in line with the College of Police and Guidance, every police force in the country will give some level of training mm. around mental health to their frontline officers. And that training may be specific custody training for those working in the custody environment. In, in terms of frontline policing, there'll be training for frontline responders. And we haven't touched upon it yet, but every police force area in the country has some form of mental health street triage. Yeah. And that triage could be either some um, a mental health nurse based in the control room or a mental health nurse or worker going out with a police officer in a vehicle to respond to calls, or a bit of a hybrid situation where you do a bit of both. And those staff working specifically on triage will have a, a more enhanced level of training again to work alongside the mental health workers and, and nurses. But for me, there is a level of training that, that's needed. And I think once we start going beyond that level of training, we're starting to take ourselves out of being police officers yeah. to be medical staff, and, you know, yeah. and, and that's not the right thing to do.
0: And in the collaborative work that police have been doing with uh, health services and other services, I know that there have been some innovative new models that have been developed. Can you tell us a bit about some of those different models and also maybe some about the impact that those models are having?
1: Well, the, the, the models are really based around triage. Yeah. Uh, and we've seen some, you know, some really good examples of partnership working. So, for instance, in the North East, there is what, what's called like a one-stop shop. So what you'll have there is, is one number to phone in for crisis care, community care, triage, whatever you need is, is, on a, is on a one number. And actually all of the teams work together. They discuss individual clients and patients, uh, make sure the best level of, of service is given to that individual. So that for me is, is almost like a Rolls-Royce model, mm-hmm. if you like. Every police force area will be paying for the mental health provision that comes in to support them. So in Wales at the moment, the four police forces spend over a million pounds a year Buying in uh, community nurses, mental health workers to come into the Katowice police offices, we pay for that. And Does that get reimbursed no, by no, the we, health? We pay system. for that. Okay. We pay for that, and we see that as a necessary investment yeah. Yeah. because what it actually gives us is access very early to mental health care plans mm. and patient records, so we understand very very quickly what the issues are with the individual. Mm-hmm. And of course, what it allows the mental health nurse to do is to give advice and guidance in relation to. Does that person need to come back in for an assessment? Does that person need an urgent appointment with their GP? Mm. Can we get the crisis care team to go out tomorrow and see them? Things like that. Yeah. So that's one model. But in my own force area, I've got 1,120 officers. Seven of my officers are completely tied up on a rotor mm. to do mental health street triage. So put the the cost of buying in the nurses, put the cost of the vehicles in, put the cost of the officers in, and suddenly you're up to probably about half a million pounds yeah. in one of the smallest police force areas in the country biggest geographical area but smallest in terms of numbers and budget you know so that's a big drain on us so we've got that issue to contend with i think triage was set up almost as an insurance policy to police forces and services to make sure we had access to these health records we had access to, to mental health colleagues where i think the model is working very well is where we're starting to see what i would call crisis care cafes sanctuary cafes in our communities usually run 24 7 uh, usually made up of mental health qualified nurses, ex-service users, mm-hmm. vo- the voluntary sector. Uh, because not everyone, of course, w- that we come into contact with needs a one-three-six assessment. Mm-hmm. Many people just need to be signposted to a service that they need to sit down, have a cup of tea, yeah. uh, have a conversation with someone to really understand what their issues are. They're, they're anxious. Uh, they've got some, they've got some issues, but actually that doesn't need an inpatient bed and an ongoing treatment. It just needs some support.
0: And in terms of those different models, are they being evaluated in terms of developing an evidence base to understand what works? So we
1: started to do some evaluation around triage. I mean, triage is not the preferred option for everyone. I think triage is seen as a stopgap. And I think with the rollout of mental health, you know, transforming mental health services, we need to get into a place where we don't need triage anymore. That we've got those mental health workers back in crisis care teams, community care teams, doing the job that they should be doing. And we've got cops back on the beat, supporting our communities and, and being visible in our communities and um, detecting crime.
0: And so that's the ideal scenario it from a police yeah. perspective. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Well, thank you so much, Chief Constable Mark Collins, thank for you. joining us. It's been really interesting and very helpful to thank hear. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. So we had a really helpful overview there from Mark about how things are working in this area from a policing perspective. Now I want to explore this from a health policy and practice perspective and also really importantly from the perspective of someone who has been in crisis in the past and received support from the police and other services. So I'm delighted to welcome to the podcast Sarah Hughes, who's the Chief Executive of Centre for Mental Health, and Marsha McAdam, an expert by experience and co-chair of the Greater Manchester Personality Disorder Strategy Group. Sarah, I'm going to come to you first. Could you introduce yourself and tell us a bit about your background and interest in this area?
2: Yeah, sure. Yeah, I'm Sarah, and I'm Chief Exec of the Centre for Mental Health. I've worked in the voluntary sector for quite a long time, mental health for about 28 years. And previous to my current role, I worked in Cambridge and Peterborough, which is quite a a famous site now for developing huge amount of innovation, especially in in crisis care, actually. I originally trained as a social worker, but have done all sorts of different things since then. But social work values are still very much how I see the world. Thank you and welcome. And Marsha, could you also introduce yourself
0: and tell us a bit about your interest in this topic?
3: So my name is Marsha McAdam and I have borderline personality disorder, otherwise known as emotional unstable personality disorder. After receiving life-changing therapy called mentalization based therapy, it completely transformed my life. However, before that, Most weekends I was in A&E or being picked up by the police through self-harming in one way or absconding. And the last time I had crisis dealing specifically with the police was about six or seven years ago.
0: I'm really glad to hear that things have improved a little bit in recent years and great to have you here. Thank you. Sarah, before we go into the specifics of policing and mental health, I just wanted to start with a broad question about how things are in the sector at the minute. What are you seeing in your role at the Centre for Mental Health and your interactions with people working in the sector?
2: I mean, I think there's there's no doubt that mental health is both in the political priority in in a way that it has never been in my lifetime. I think it's in the mind of society in a way that it also hasn't been in my lifetime. So the government have made huge promises around investment for the NHS long-term plan, you know, carrying on from the five-year forward view, particularly focusing on huge investment into crisis. That's Um, the good news. So that's (laughs) the good news. But anyone who knows me will know that there is sadly a but. And, And the but really is that whilst there has been huge innovation around the country for crisis, crisis care particularly and I think as we're talking about that in our perspective from the Centre for Mental Health we're very clear that health intervention is only one part of the of the puzzle and that people actually only ever get to health when they've explored every other avenue for help and if all of the other things aren't in place then people are going to be getting into crisis more frequently the revolving door kind of syndrome is going to carry on we want to see social care, housing, communities, welfare benefits, all of those things being considered at the same level as, as health. We can provide the best clinical intervention in the world, which I do think we do on many occasions. Yeah. But if you're sending somebody home from that best treatment to, a you know, it, unstable housing yeah. and, and, you know, no money and, you know, poor relationship or addiction issues, then that Excellent treatment is not going to have the long-term impact we need to see. So we heard
0: earlier in the episode from Chief Constable Mark Collins and he told us about how the police are often the first responders when it comes to providing support to people in crisis. Recently there have been reports published that suggest that police are finding themselves spending more and more of their time responding to people experiencing a mental health crisis. Sarah, starting with you, why do you think it's ending up with police Mm. shouldering more of the responsibility here?
2: Yes, I mean, I think it's true that certainly the police are having to deal with more and more complicated issues every day relating to to mental illness. And that's often, I think, because the system hasn't been geared up until very recently to deal with people in crisis in the way that we need people to be supported at that very difficult time. And the police are quick, they can access places in ways that nobody else in the system can. And so I have an ambivalence between thinking we don't want the police, to, to feel like 75% of their work is mental health related to actually people with mental illness live in the community. So why wouldn't the police just Absolutely. deal with the people who are living in our community and in our society? The public, and they So it's a kind of double bind again, really, between thinking, are they the best people? Mm. To they do need to respond to the public in, in a rapid, sensitive, compassionate way when that is appropriate. Mm. In recent times, I wouldn't have said this a decade ago, I have to say, but in recent times, I've seen police respond in quite extraordinarily compassionate ways and I've worked very closely with them and and been quite inspired and felt humbled by their compassion and really wanting to do the right thing. And you have a conversation with most police officers and they will say that they are equally troubled when they arrive to somebody and realise that that person's in crisis because they're not getting the help they need. And Marsha,
0: just coming to you, does that chime with your experience of your interactions with with the police on the occasions that you have?
3: Yeah, there would sometimes be the good cop and the bad cop. I think the last time that I was taken to A&E by the police, and I think they had to blue light it because there was no ambulance that came, mm-hmm. but I was really distressed and the police came in the front door and then some came in back door um, and one of them had a taser. Luckily, my son was there and sort of everything was fine. So that was really, really scary mm. with the persistent distress that I used to have, it was like the police were the only ones that you really you could get that would look after you. But then to me it was a game of when they came I'd run round my house and try and hide and it was quite distressing. Going back to the last time, one of them said to me, we've got a lost child that we need to look for. So that was really, really Bad, um, making me feel even more of a hindrance, or that I was not valued. I know that during those times, I wouldn't have wanted to sort of sit outside a room at A and E with me. Um, and I used to say to them, "There's no point in you staying with me. As soon as, as soon as I'm seen, I'm going to be sent home." And then I started to see how the police actually did their disbelief at that happening. Um, But I do really feel for the police officers.
0: And when you say you really feel for them, is that because you feel they're in a difficult position in terms of the impact on their resourcing or the, the difficulty of the work given they're not health professionals?
3: For me, I really feel for them because they're at the forefront of everything. And in Greater Manchester, um, the three mental health trusts have come to de- together, and they've done a training package for one thousand two hundred police officers that has been specifically tailored and um, for Greater Manchester police, and it's built. It's actually been built a really positive. Um, relationship between police and the mental health services and I think to me that feels right it feels like the police officers are actually being taken care of.
0: Okay so you really see a need for for the police to also um, get support with this work and it's really interesting you bring it you bring up the issue of the kind of joint working between the police and and services and it sounds like there's some really positive work going on in in Greater Manchester. Um, What I'd like to talk about now is um, places of safety Mm. um, because I know that part of the role of the police is to take people to an appropriate place of Mm. safety so that they can be properly assessed and in the past because of a lack of appropriate facilities in health settings there were too many cases where police cells were used as
2: places of safety has that changed so I think that I think that's definitely uh, the policy yeah uh, that people should not be taken to police cells in great distress Mm. but I think that there are circumstances in which it happens because the resources aren't aren't yet in place so so there 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 are still incidences I'm quite quite uh, confident Uh, in saying that Um, and again it comes from the, the system hasn't quite caught up with the policy yet so it's it's OK to say, you know, we're not going to take people to police cells, but we haven't yet built capacity within the system to take somebody somewhere else. If you don't have a non-clinical environment to take people to, then then you are really at a loss. And, mm. and I think that there is a real dilemma there for the police and clinicians mm. about what to do to keep somebody yeah. safe. And nobody in that situation feels happy about taking somebody to a police cell because it absolutely puts them at very immediate risk. So from from our perspective, the investment that the NHS long-term plan provides for crisis services one of the real brilliant opportunities that that affords us is to create more places of safety. And those places of safety can be, you know, actually building capacity in hospitals Mm -hmm. for one or two spaces, but but also really develop non-clinical spaces that people can be taken to as long as that they are not at immediate risk and, you know, perhaps haven't overdosed and don't need a clinical intervention, but actually are in such great distress that they would really benefit from being in a, you know, a supportive, compassionate, non-threatening environment and and that's what the NHS long-term plan is offering us the opportunity to develop those around the country and the point that Marsha makes around the mental health of our police force Mm. is an absolutely critical one which we must not underestimate and I do think that that affects how the system works I think it actually affects uh, police officers ability to then deal with situations well and you know when you go to the nurse you know you go to A&E with somebody who's in great crisis and A&E within five minutes sends them home again you know that sets up quite a difficult relationship between mm. the police and the nursing staff so mm. what we've seen as well around the country is conflict building because both parts of the system don't have the resources to do what they really feel they would like to do. And inevitably, uh, we have seen situations where you've seen police blame the nurses and the nurses blame the police. And in the middle of it is a really vulnerable person. And yeah. that's what it boils down to. Marsha,
3: The police, two police officers were waiting with me um, on the corridor. Um, and I was sitting in a wheelchair because of waiting for a long time. They brought me in the side area and this nurse came up to me and was really nasty. I then tried to walk out and the police officers were wrestling me, I was covered in bruises, down so that I didn't get out. And the nurse was standing over me saying, you know exactly what you're doing. If you're facing that, then you start acting out and playing up and then I used to then disappear. And then the police would had, had to get called and then I, this was all because there was no stability. But you
2: can see how those experiences when you're in crisis actually are trauma-inducing in themselves. One of the things that I admire about Marsha is that coming out of that, being able to share with other people who've also experienced that, that one, you're not alone. And that, that sharing those stories are so important because people are still experiencing it. Actually, it's only by listening to that detail that Marsha is giving us about that that the language that's used the tone of voice you know all of those things matter as well as the millions of pounds that we're putting into the system so I I just feel that we need to really kind of acknowledge that actually. And the end point has to be the the outcomes
0: of the the individuals and that sounds like that's getting lost and I guess at some point there needs to be a line drawn at what is the the role of police and the, you know, kind of reasonable amount of resource police can put into training versus the line where you become police are becoming a health professional.
2: Well, absolutely. Uh, there is, a, and there is a really important debate to be had because we've also got the role of paramedics and we we haven't really mentioned them. But the role of paramedics is also incredibly important. I personally have spent hours and hours outside somebody's house with the paramedics and the police with somebody who's locked in their house trying to get them help yeah sounded and like years ago. It, it wasn't you but, but but you know i mean i mean and and the person being in great distress we all in great distress because you know really not knowing uh, uh, what to do yeah. and, and also actually the paramedics you know feeling like they had to go it was them that called the police because they thought she's she's taken an overdose in there we can't kick yeah. down the door but um our mates can yeah. you know and i and i think it, it, it's a really complicated issue of you know do they have enough training mm. to deal with the complexity that they're facing in society today yeah. and i think i would argue that they probably don't it's not just about mental health i would say addiction yeah. working with older people yeah. children I, the, the list is endless really and i think that that's that's a real dilemma for the police that i appreciate and respect and understand but then we have got the public and the public's needs are changing. Yes. And therefore, our psychological framework for what we think the police should do, the paramedics do, the health professionals to do, the teachers should do, has to change. Yes. And that's that's going to be the next big debate across the piece, that it's not about keeping people's traditional roles traditional but actually thinking, what do the public need today? With all of the changing yeah. faces that we're seeing.
0: And actually, there needs to be a kind of paradigm shift in terms of how we look at, we really understand the needs Absolutely. of the public and then develop services that are tailored to respond to those needs.
3: Absolutely. I've been on the the mental health conference circuit for the last four or so years. Yeah. Um, and seen so many um, presentations and that. But I think that the language in the last few months has completely changed.
0: For the better. For
3: the better. It's encouraging that everyone has value. Mm -hmm. Um, And I guess that, for me, as someone that uses mental health services, by having this voice, Um, it actually feels me like I contribute to society, yeah. and I want others to feel that too. But it be done in a safe way yeah. and not just a tokenistic way. Yeah. Um, but really, get those voices. Mm-hmm. And so. it
0: sounds like that's starting to shift.
3: Yes, definitely.
0: And um, when we spoke to Mark earlier, he said that in his view, it was essential that essential from a policing perspective that some of the extra money or new money that's going into mental health services gets invested in services that support people in crisis such as crisis resolution services and and I just wondered Sarah are you optimistic that that is going to happen I know there's the there's the mental
2: health forward view but and the long-term plan uh, i i absolutely do feel confident in that that's going to happen so we you know the long-term plan outlines very clearly the mm. the, the commitment to crisis services over the kind uh, over uh, you know over the course of the coming years 23 24 what we expect to see by then it's a huge amount of money there are huge um promises in terms of what that means mm. and what it could look like we're working with nhs england to think about the blueprint for for what that could mean in real terms yeah. uh we we would certainly want to see that investment not just being used actually for clinical services so i, I would like to see uh, the third sector who have been delivering crisis services for decades yeah. without funding to be funded for some of the things that they do so those non-clinical environments mm. crisis cafes yeah. the sanctuaries kind yeah. of you know that investment must occur yeah. so it's not uh, again i think crisis mustn't be considered as a as a a health problem this is a systemic societal social care it's it's a much broader problem and it requires a a thoughtful response that's that's uh, system-wide and and certainly involves community leaders but third sector organisations too. So in a sentence from each of you where
0: do you hope we are in say five years time when it comes to this what do you hope to see?
3: I hope it happens before five years. Um, Good challenge. I yeah. hope that um, instead of talking, let's really get down and doing it because we've been talking about it for too long and people are losing their lives. Thank you. I think
2: I would echo that, but I would also say that Whilst I would like to see nationwide effective crisis services and you know effective sustainable mental health services, I would also like to to see in parallel that we are also dealing with the systemic um, inequality issues that that really impact on on people's ability to live well good happy lives and so mm-hmm. you know I would like us in, in a double track way to be thinking about housing to be thinking yeah. about poverty to be thinking about exclusion to be thinking about all of those things too because actually you know again having the best crisis care in the world um you know will only deal with one part of the problem and, yeah and, and, and it's picking up the pieces yeah uh, it's, it's you know actually it's, these stuff this stuff starts a long way back absolutely so so for me it's a, it's a broad church of, yeah. of things that we need to think about well, thank you so much
0: to both of you, Marcia McAdam and Sarah Hughes. It's been a pleasure to talk to you both today. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Well, that's it from us. If you've been affected by any of the issues raised in this podcast, we've included information about organisations that can offer advice and support in the show notes, which can be found on our website, which is www.kingsfund.org.uk forward slash podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. And if you have feedback or ideas for topics you'd like to hear covered in future episodes, then please get in touch, either on Twitter, at The King's Fund, or my account, at Helena Macarena. We hope you can join us next time.